I'd like to say good morning. I greet you in Christ's name. It's good to be here at Bethel this morning. What a privilege it is to meet with God's people in God's house. I think we sometimes take it for granted that the church will be there and we can fellowship together, but it is, it is truly a blessing. The title to this morning's message is An, An, An Inconvenient Truth. It has to do with the permanency of marriage. Marriage is for life. The text will be taken from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 16. You can turn there if you wish. We'll be going there in a few minutes. I'm not a fan of former Vice President Al Gore. I merely borrowed his, the name of his book for this morning's message. I don't believe in man-made global warming. Many find the truth relating to the permanency of marriage to be an inconvenient truth. And as I was thinking, meditating here this morning, even in, in church, we sometimes cover it up. I think it's very convenient for us to kind of ignore it. We know it's there. We know that that is what we believe. I think we know that. But we kind of like to put it in the background. It's an inconvenient truth. Marriage is for life. Divorce is not God's plan. God hates divorce, the Scriptures say. Remarriage causes folks to live in adultery. Adultery, unless it is repented of, will result in eternal separation from God. Adulterers will not inherit eternal life unless there is sincere repentance and a turning around. The truth about the permanency of marriage is an inconvenient truth for the selfish person who is tired of her partner or who now realizes that he is not what he seemed to be. It's an inconvenient truth for our godless culture who wants to exclude God from their decisions and their bedrooms. It's an inconvenient truth for someone who has come to Christ and his and her life is a mess of entanglements in previous relationships. It's an inconvenient truth for the church who takes the truth of God and Scripture seriously and whose heart bleeds because of sincere seekers who cannot seem to make the painful decisions that God asks. I was writing with one of the guys from work this is quite some time ago, maybe 15 years. I was riding with him in his truck in the front seat, and I'll call this guy Joe. He actually lives in our community here. And uh, Joe was telling me how he was getting his life together. A previous marriage didn't work out. I found out separately that this was, in fact, Joe's third marriage. Joe was telling me how he was taking his children to Sunday school now and he was going to bring them up in a godly manner, that this marriage was going to work and everything would be good. I didn't tell Joe that he was living in adultery. I couldn't do it. I didn't have the heart. I couldn't tell Joe that God is not good with this marriage. That the good that he was going to be doing this time around, he was going to be doing while he was living in sin. 
that in order to be clear, he would need to separate from his beautiful wife. How can I tell someone like Joe that marriage is for life and that the marriage bond is not broken by divorce? That the second marriage, while his first partner is still living, is always wrong. That God considers his life with the second partner to be an adulterous relationship. This is so tough and heartrending. Evangelical pastors are telling their parishioners that divorce is bad and that God does not like divorce. That divorce is not a first choice, but that God will forgive and clear the books and they can move on with that second or third marriage and this time they need to work harder to make this a good marriage. Christian teachers are telling their listeners that divorce and remarriage is a sin unless your partner was unfaithful to you. That regardless of the circumstance, God is merciful and will forgive you and that you can start over in another marriage. Many conservative religious folks are up in arms about homosexuality and the sinfulness of this lifestyle that is making its way even into our Mennonite churches. Homosexuality is a sin and the offender will not make it into heaven unless that sin is repented of. The same is true for the person, however, who is remarried and living in adultery. I'd like for you to think about that. It's a very inconvenient truth. Most of us are aware of the Trojan horse story. You heard it as a child. You saw the little picture of a Trojan horse pulled up beside the city of Troy. And how that the long war that was going on between the Greeks and the city of Troy. The ten-year siege was being unfruitful. The Greeks had constructed a huge wooden horse, and they hid a group of men up inside that horse. And so they withdrew. They finally just withdrew their, their ships, and they sailed over the horizon. And the citizens of Troy said, well, they're gone. It's finally over. And they pulled the, the horse up inside the city, not knowing that that night the... Soldiers would come out of the horse and would open up the city. This Trojan horse of divorce and remarriage has made it into our churches. It's inside. And it's created a huge mess. I'm the first to tell you that this, emotion, this is an emotionally charged subject that I'm sharing on this morning. And I don't do it lightly. I have prayed, I have sought God's face about this. God... Am I, do I really know that this is what I believe about the Scripture? Do, can I really be confident in sharing that this is what, in fact, the Scriptures are saying? It's easy to look at the black and white of Scripture in, in, a, in a vacuum, in a, in, a, in, a, in a place off by yourself, and you say, well, that's what the Bible says. It's clear what the Bible says. But when you put a face and a life, there it becomes a lot more involved when you put a face to it. Then it's painful. And it's not easy at all. It creates yet another hurdle for seekers who have come to Christ and are searching for a faithful Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church to become a part of. How grounded are you this morning in the teaching of the Scripture regarding divorce and remarriage? Ask yourself that question. 
Because it is, it is important that we are grounded and that we do know what we believe. What is that exception clause that you keep hearing about in the Gospel of Matthew? What is required for someone who is in a divorced and remarried state? What is required of them to come clear? We need to know what we believe. The inconvenient truth is that God, that God has a plan for marriage and it is, and it is a, a, a plan that is very difficult for some to accept. And God doesn't have a second plan. He doesn't have a plan B. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 7, I want to read that as initially. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and following. I'm reading this morning from the English Standard Version. And we're going to be looking at a number of scriptures as a background for this message. My sincere desire is that the, that the words that I speak today be totally grounded in the Word. Verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 7. To the married... This is Paul giving advice, giving his advice to the Corinthian church. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried and or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I invite you to turn now to Romans 7, first, uh, second and third verse of Romans chapter 7. Paul's teaching again. Romans 7, verse 2 and 3. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another woman, man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And then to Mark chapter 10, the gospel account of Jesus teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage. Mark chapter 10. We'll save the Matthew scripture for a bit later. I do want to get into portions of it. But they are very similar with one large exception between the, the account in Mark and Matthew. Mark 10, verse 2, And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Some very startling, very clear uh, words from Scripture there. Let's just start out with just a little bit on the purpose of marriage. I don't want to dwell on this. This is not the focus of the message today. What is God's purpose for marriage? Turn in your Bibles again to Genesis 2, a few verses there. Genesis 2, verses 18 to 24. Note that this is God who institutes marriage. It is not a thing that happened much later as part of of Christ's teaching. He was instituted back at the creation. Genesis 2, verse 18. And the Lord said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them, whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper for him, fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept he took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. There are a number of purposes for God's for marriage. God wanted to illustrate to us what his loving relationship is with the church. But from the beginning, there were at least four main purposes for marriage. The first one was companionship. It was not good for man to be alone. Affection and love and companionship. Uh, Marriage was created for that. Secondly, for enjoyment. The physical relationship is a reflection of the loyalty and affection shared among marriage partners. The third one is fruitfulness. The blessing of children in a marriage relationship allows that relationship to reproduce itself physically. And fourthly, it's protection. The husband protects the wife by laying down his life for her, and the wife is to protect the home, and the parents together protect their children. These are some of the main purposes for marriage. I got these, these points from a uh, familylife.com. I want to credit them for those four points. I want to move on now to the focus of today's message, and that is the marriage bond. What we're talking about today is the inconvenient truth that marriage is for life. First of all, it is a, a, a universal practice. Marriage is, is something that's practiced around the world. If you think about it, it's pretty amazing, you know, over in Japan or in Russia or wherever else marriage is being practiced. It is, it is a practice that is around the world for two people to be joined together in the bond of marriage. And the thing I don't totally understand that is when people get married, even in Japan, that God 
creates a bond there in that marriage. They, have, they become one flesh. It is not only when it happens in a Christian setting. It's not only when we as a pastor would, would to bond, make this marriage bond between married couple that this bond happens. There is a bond that happens even when the person is not a Christian. They get married every day, people, all kinds of people, different faiths, no faith, some of them. Marriage is a pre-Christian institution. It dates before Christ and the New Covenant. We mentioned that already. It is also extra-Christian and non-Christian institution. A marriage ceremony that might be accomplished here in Rustburg by a justice of the peace is just as valid as one that is done in this church. It is a bond that is, it's important that we understand that God honors, God creates that bond in a marriage, whether it's done in a church or whether it's done elsewhere. That is a bond that happens when, when two people are married. Number three, marriage is permanent. And that's what we're really going to be speaking to, to today is the fact that God intended marriage to be permanent, never ever to be broken. Jesus said very clearly what God has put, brought together, let not man put asunder. It is, it is a clear principle that marriage is in fact permanent as long as the two parties are still living. Marriage is for life. Number four, it's a God-designed bond, broken only by death. A point that is controversial, but I think it's true that divorce does not end the marriage bond that God made. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. God created a bond regardless of how it was established by the state or in a church or whenever. When two people were married, there was a one flesh that was created then in that bond. And when that is legally separated by the government, is, and the government does legally do that, their separation, it does not separate that bond. Scripture is pretty clear that that bond continues. And that is where the, the, the sin of adultery comes in in a second marriage relationship. And that is that if that person is still living and you remarry, and regardless of the cause for that separation, that in fact, that it, there is an adulterous situation that is being set up. We know that there was a period of tolerance in the Old Testament. Jesus ended that period of tolerance in the Old Testament. The Pharisees came up to Jesus and they said, you know, Moses said we could get, we could get divorced. And Moses didn't actually say that. He said, if you do get divorced, you can't marry the same person again. That's what Moses said. But anyway, they were allowed to, in some cases, depending on some sects of the Jews, for almost any reason, they could divorce. And uh, it, was, it was a rampant thing. But Jesus, as he did with so many other aspects of our life, reestablished a much higher level, much higher criteria for relationships. Jesus came along in the Sermon on the Mount and he set a bar that is so much higher than what it was before. And the bar that Jesus set up here is, is that marriage, as it was in creation, is to be a lifelong thing. Now to the heart of the message this morning. What is the exception clause? You may have heard of it or not. The exception clause that most of, many of our evangelical friends 
and pastors will use as an as a reason to allow a divorce and remarriage is found in the Gospel of Matthew only. It is found in two places in the Gospel of Matthew, not to be found in the same account in Mark and in Luke, not to be found in any of Paul's writings. But in the Gospel of Matthew, there is a an exception clause that Christ is recorded that Christ spoke. And it is as follows. Matthew 19, verse 9. says, I say to you, Jesus speaking, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, the King James translation that many of you have would say except for fornication. The Greek word is pornea. And marries another commits adultery. Moikao is the Greek word there. I highlight the difference between those two terms because they're used in the same in the same sentence. And in elsewhere in Matthew, those two words are, are used in a list right next to each other. So there is a difference. There's a big difference between those two words. And it's important in our understanding that we understand that the term here translated by the English Standard Version, sexual immorality, is, does come from porneia, which is not, is not adultery in this case. It can be adultery, but Jesus was not using it to... to the, his Jewish audience knew that this was not adultery that he was referring to. It was, it was a different thing. It was a, it's, it's, it's a sexual sin that is uh, much broader than the term used for adultery. The other uh, scripture that Matt, the other verses that Matthew uses them is, is uh, right together. It's, uh, he says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. This is Matthew 15. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. They are obviously separate terms. They are being used in this context in different ways. I think that the King James does well in narrowing it down to fornication, is premarital sex. Another example that fortifies my understanding of this is found in John 8, the Gospel of John, we know the setting of the woman caught in adultery. woman was caught in adultery in the very act, supposedly, and these religious leaders brought this woman in front of Jesus and they said, what do you say? We caught her and she's, she was in adultery and, and what do you say? And Jesus knew they were trying to trap him in this thing. And he just stooped down and wrote on the ground and... And look back up and finally tells him, any, any of you here that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then he bowed, he bowed over and wrote on the ground again, just, just doodling in the ground. I don't know what he was writing, if anything. But he was there and they, 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 they became convicted. Their consciences of these Jewish leaders became convicted and they left one after another. Finally, Jesus looked up and there was just the woman and, and Jesus. And it's very important. It's very telling. What he told her, he says, he says, uh, is there nobody condemning you here? And she said, no, there isn't. He says, I don't, 
condemn you either. Go and sin no more. It speaks to the need of repentance. The example I was really looking for is more in John 8. Is in John 8. The Jews were accusing Jesus of being illegitimate. Jesus had gotten on their case and and told them that they were of their father, the devil, and the works of their father you do. And they turned around and said, well, we weren't born (laughs) like you were. And the word there is used, is used as porneo, in fornication. They were making the, accusing Jesus of being born out of wedlock. And so that term is uh, probably best translated by fornication. What is the exception then that Matthew's gospel gives to divorce and remarriage? What is the exception? What, What is Jesus saying? The closest explanation I have is from what is called a betrothal view. I was taught this as a youngster. I did quite a bit of reading on it just recently. And it, it, makes, it makes a lot of sense to me. When a young Jewish man went to get married, they went to the lady girl's house and they struck up a deal. It was more than just, I'm going to marry you. It's, uh, it was a financial arrangement. It was all kinds of things. And the betrothal period began. It was a very binding period, uh, much more binding than what our engagement period would be today. They were called husband and wife. They were referred to as husband and wife. And to to break this engagement, it wasn't just a matter of the young guy or the girl calling up saying, I'm sorry, we're done. They had to get a divorce to break that. And the example we have of is, is Jesus when he was conceived by Mary, his mother, Joseph wanted to put her away. Matthew 1, verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The betrothal situation in the Jewish culture of that day would would explain, I think, to me what Jesus was giving in this exception clause. He said, you cannot divorce and remarry. You are not allowed to unless it was happened during that betrothal period, before the marriage had been consummated, before the marriage vows had actually taken place. Then it was allowable. And Joseph, in fact, was a just man, the Bible says, and he was, that's what he was going to do. He was going to do it quietly, because he's also a nice guy. And so they, he was going to divorce Mary. And that was, Jesus was giving allowance for that. There are other interpretations of this. Uh, the early church fathers interpreted this word porneia 
as uh, as a, a loose living, a person who is just a real out there, just just living loosely, and that in fact a Christian could separate from that person, but not to remarry. That was the called the patriarchal view. The early church fathers had that had that view. So is divorce and remarriage a sin? Yeah, it is. Scripture says it is. Sometimes divorce can't be avoided. You may be the person who is not even seeking a divorce. But your partner is, is out running around and then they ask for a divorce. And, and the scripture that we read in First Corinthians 7, it says that you should not fight it, per se. You are not in bondage. You're not enslaved to that situation. You can sign the divorce. You don't initiate the divorce, but you can, you can release that person. But as it says also in First Corinthians 7, then you are to remain unmarried or later to be reconciled. To that first marriage. That's the, that's the teaching of Scripture. It's the sin of adultery if you remarry. I, I find it very clear, uncomfortably clear. The next question, the one I've dealt with just here recently, and it's very, very troubling is adultery an act? Or is it a state? Our Protestant friends, for the most part, would teach that it is a one-time act. When you remarry, that in fact you have committed adultery against your first partner. But that you can repent of that and you can continue on living with this in this second marriage. That is a teaching that most Protestants would have. Divorce is terrible. It's, it's a wrong thing, they would say. God hates divorce. But that's in the past now. The sin that you committed in remarrying is in the past now. And you can be forgiven. And now this new marriage, go, go for it. Give it all that you have. What about that? The scripture in um, Romans 7 that we read earlier is fairly clear. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. That is a present tense form of the word there. She shall be called an adulteress. She is living in adultery. And so is he. And so the painful part, the inconvenient part is, what do I do? What do I tell my friend who I'm trying to win for the Lord or who I'm talking with? What do I tell him? What do I tell them about that marriage that's been going for years and years and they've got a family? What do I tell them? Whatever I tell them is probably going to get them very upset. 
Maybe, if it's not done very carefully. It got one man his head knocked off. I'm thinking of John the Baptist. We know the story of John the Baptist. He got his head taken off because he told Herod that it was not right for him to have his brother Philip's wife. And Herodias, the second wife, and Herod were very upset at this, so they put John in prison. And we know the story of what happened there. They were throwing a big party one night. And Herodias' daughter, this daughter from the second marriage, was dancing and, and Herod was there and they were all having a great time. And Herod says, oh, whatever you want, I'm going to give it to you. And she's like, I don't know what I want. She goes running off to her mom, this lovely Herodias. He says, what, what shall I ask? What shall I ask this man? He's going to give me up to half of his kingdom. She said, I want John the Baptist's head. And it happened. If John the Baptist would have been our typical Protestant pastor of today, he would say, no, don't worry about it. It's in the past. Repent of it, confess it, and now you're clear to go. Don't worry about it. And he would have saved his head. He didn't. Forgiveness requires repentance. Repentance is a turning from, a turning around, a quitting of doing the wrong thing. That's what repentance is. You can't repent and keep on doing it. You can't do it. It's impossible. An illustration that I read of repentance, of what repentance really is, is this little town up in, in Labrador, Canada, eastern Canada. It's a very remote place, and they didn't have a road into town until finally the government put a road into town. And this road into town comes way from way back the mainland or wherever and goes out and, 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 and connects this little town on the coast with the rest of Canada. The only way to get out of Wabush, Wabush, in Labrador, Canada, is to turn around. It's the only way out of town. And that's what repentance is. And that is an illustration, I think, of what repentance is. is it's turning away. It's a turning away. Sin must be turned away. Let him that stole, the Bible says, steal no more. John the Baptist, again, he says, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. There must be repentance. How to do it. It's very, very, very tough. It's very, very tough. There's so many mixed up situations out there in our society today. Marriages and second marriages and marriage and a half and third cousins and I don't know how else to describe it, but it's a royal mess. 
How do you sort it all out? I hope by the grace of God you can. But there must, first of all, if we realize that it's wrong to divorce and remarry, there must be a repentance and a turning from it. God will give grace to the person who is sincere in their repentance. Sin will have consequence. We know that. It, it, it does. And, in, and especially in the area of, marriage, area of marriage relationships, there are so many consequences of sin. But God's grace, I believe, is there for all of those situations. And when we are sincere in repenting, God will make a way. Claire Martin is a, is a pastor, and I was reading his article on divorce and remarriage. It was a huge help to me, by the way. Uh, I would highly recommend it. It's, it's posted on uh, biblicalmennonite.com, which is uh, the BMA website. Go there and look. Uh, go divorce and remarriage. It's a it's a well done piece. And he describes a story in the Sword and Trumpet of 1996, March 1996. There was a story describes an interview between the pastors of a congregation and a middle aged couple who had become Christians and were looking for a church home. During the interview, there seemed to be a troublesome underlying issue that had not been verbalized. Finally, it was revealed that for one of the partners, this was their third marriage. There were five children involved, and the situation was emotionally intense. The ministers explained as kindly as possible their understanding of the teaching of the Bible on the subject. The couple, somewhat upset, left the interview sensing that their questioning was at a dead end. The ministry, with heavy hearts, assumed that they likely would never see these seekers again. However, they later learned that the couple had made arrangements to live separately. The husband continued supporting the family financially and shared in the spiritual nurture of the children, of whom only two were biologically his own. This couple had been searching the scriptures for themselves, and they had found, and what they had found did not reassure them in their marriage. They had inquired of four or five other pastors and all assured them that their marriage need not be dissolved. But they found it difficult to reconcile these answers with their understanding of the New Testament. They eventually became members of the first congregation where they had been confronted with the claims of Scripture regarding pure marriages. Life is difficult, but they live with the assurance that they responded honestly and correctly to God's word regarding their marriage. Had the ministers formulated their answer to accommodate unfortunate circumstances rather than maintaining biblical integrity, things would have turned out differently. It's never easy. It's never easy. But God's grace is there. Sin has consequence. The innocent will suffer. Sometimes the innocent party in the divorce. If there is such a thing, there is sometimes. Children, we know, are the victims of these things. Grace for celibacy may be there. The 
account that we just read of the exception clause, the disciples, when they heard Jesus say, you know, you, you, can't, you can't divorce and remarry, she said, well, how in the world is, is this going to work? And this is what they said, Matthew 19, verse 10. Disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. I never knew what that verse meant before just recently in my study. That in fact it may require celibacy. It may require living single. Grace to do the right thing. God will provide. What is my goal for this message? What was my goal for this message? Well, I'll stand right up here and tell you I'm not a marriage expert. I am not a marriage expert. I am not even a great counselor. I am charged with being a minister of the word and I want to do that faithfully I want to do it carefully I would pray that each one listening would be better grounded in the scripture regarding the subject of divorce and remarriage to understand the permanency of the marriage bond to understand the mess that is made when folks disregard God's plan for marriage and selfishly go their own way. To show that there is forgiveness in all of these situations if there is genuine repentance. And to offer the encouragement that God's grace is there even in the tough, tough situations that we may find ourselves in. God bless you.